the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. God, I just found all of um, James Mustapak's notes about what he wanted to talk about tonight. Uh, um, Should have really had a look at these before he came in. Oh, it's fabulous stuff here. James Mustapak, uh, check him out on You The Tube or whatever you like. All right, later on this hour, another edition of Jesus, Make It Stop. Glyn Harper walking us through the last days of World War I, heading towards the Armistice Day, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. It will have been, at that stage, 100 years ago. It will be on a Sunday. Okay. Um, Just a couple of extras from Media Stick. Some brilliant headlines uh, this week. The sort of thing that only comes from the bizarro world, you would think, but um, these are from the Herald, the BBC, and the BBC. From the Herald, Volvo scarf makes wearers look like they're being born. BBC, missing pianist buried by wrong family, and also from the BBC, why Finnish people don't like to chat. And also news that Apu is being sacked from The Simpsons. After months of controversy surrounding the racial treatment of beloved Simpsons character Apu, they've revealed the character will be axed. Producer Adi Shankar wrote, uh, has told Indie Wire. All right, coming up after the break, uh, Skeptical Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch on his agenda. We're having a look at the blasphemy law in New Zealand and the prayer in Parliament. So get on your knees after the break. And we'll have a, we'll, we'll actually pray after uh, the commercial break on Skeptical Force. Bullshit. Okay, time for Skeptical Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch, Jesus for New Zealand. Hello, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Very good. Okay, uh, Tuesday, day after tomorrow, hundreds of Christians expected to march on Parliament. What for? Yeah, so um, the estimate was hundreds. I actually checked the website this afternoon. They're expecting maybe thousands now are going to be marching on Parliament. And um, they have a problem with parliamentary prayer. Um, This is something that happened a few months ago, that the parliamentary prayer was changed. Um, Until recently, it mentioned Jesus and the Queen, and just fairly quietly it was changed a while ago. And and since that point, Christians have not been overly happy. I think we have some audio of the old prayer being said. Yeah, here here it is. Oh, do you? The old prayer? I thought I've only got the new prayer, haven't I? Uh, Play it. We'll see which one it is. Okay. How's that? There we go. Are you mad for shagging the orange? Oh, stop it. It went to the wrong thing. Mad for shagging, aren't you? I don't think that's going to, um, to be confused with the uh, prayer, although the Christians might think it might be if it was that evil. Here we go. Almighty God, humbly acknowledging our need for your guidance in all things and laying aside all private and personal interests, we ask that you grant that we may conduct the affairs of this house and of our country to the glory of your holy name the maintenance of true religion and justice, 
the honour of the Queen and the public welfare, peace and tranquility of New Zealand. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Oh, right. It has got Jesus Christ our Lord. That's rather parochial for Palestine, isn't it? Yeah, and, and mentions of things like maintenance of true religion and justice. It definitely comes across as, uh, as quite Christian, this prayer. But the new version, which I believe Trevor Mallard had a, a hand in putting into place, simply says, Almighty God, we give thanks, thanks for the, the blessings, blessings which have been bestowed so on New Zealand. Zealand. Laying Inside. aside all personal interests, we pray for guidance Inside. in our deliberations, that we may conduct the affairs of this house with wisdom and humility, for the public welfare and peace of New Zealand. Amen. Now, uh, me, you don't forget the amen, Mark. <laughs> Together. And amen, amen. of course. <laughs> All right. But to me, that, that prayer seems um, a lot more generic, and it seems like a prayer that could be accepted by a lot more religious people than just Christians, because it mentions Almighty God, which has a little bit of a Christian flavor to it, but... I can imagine people of other faiths thinking that it's talking about their God. And outside of that, there's nothing overtly Christian. Mm. But despite this, the people who are organizing the march have basically said the nation needs you to, at this time to make a stand as one for our Lord Jesus Christ on the steps of Parliament in Wellington. And then Pastor Ross Smith, who's from Jesus for New Zealand, says um, that what Trevor Mallard has done will marginalize all faiths and religions. Now, to me, it's exactly the opposite. It's more welcoming of all faiths and religions. Mm. I don't get how they're describing this, except what I can see might be the case is that they seem to be worried that this is just the first step in removing God altogether from Parliament. Well, and, um, why would God... Why is God in Parliament anyway, is my point, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that that's a very good point, that... Um, you know, in a modern society, we really do want to have a society that's fair for everybody. And having Christianity as, as the one religion that's promoted within Parliament, that's not fair. That's not going to make people of other faiths welcome. It's not going to make people of no faith welcome. And, of course, it's that group that is growing um, all the time. So I think the last 20 years or more, the number of people who say they are of no religion in the census is rising by about 1% per year. And it, mm. it's a pretty constant rise, apparently, at the moment. So the 2012 census, uh, non-believers were at 42%. And it looks like similarly Christians are dropping by about 1%. And in 2012, they're at 49. So I imagine the census that we're just waiting for the results from, the most recent census, is probably going to show people of no faith on a parity, if not being more numerous than, um, than Christians. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean that an atheist worldview should be the one that's promoted by Parliament. That's what not what secularism is. Secularism, the idea of being fair, is the idea that nothing is promoted. You're not promoting a religious belief. You're not denigrating a religious belief. That Parliament and other parts of government should just go nowhere near religion as far as promotion is concerned, or near no non-religion. Um, and we'd love to see this, but um, I'm... I'm going to basically, I'm going to Parliament on Tuesday and I've invited some other people to come along with me because I like doing activism. Um, and I think the idea of arguing secularism is a little bit dry and boring. So instead of doing that, we're going to go 
exactly the opposite route. And what we're going to do instead is we're going to argue for the inclusion of all faiths in parliamentary prayer. We're going to take a few placards and uh, just have a little bit of lighthearted fun and um, and argue that maybe Cthulhu needs to be mentioned in Parliament mm. as well as the Christian God and um, and possibly Goza from um, Ghostbusters needs to be mentioned as well. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are many other religions that aren't being mentioned. So oh, Ahura Mazda has been left out for so long. Um, it would upset them if someone just said Al-Huakbar at the beginning of uh, the prayer at, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, there you know there are religions that seem like they're silly, but people really do take them somewhat seriously. So a lot of people identify in this country as Jedi, and um, we have pastafarian ministers in this country, of which at least one has expressed an interest in coming on Tuesday dressed as a pirate, which would be really good fun to see. Um, so I'm I'm hoping. That, uh, that we will get a few people turning up. It doesn't need to be a big crowd for us. I mean, there's always going to be more Christians than, than us atheists, I think. But it's always said that uh, trying to get atheists organized is like herding cats. I'm sure a lot of groups are described like that. But, yeah. but certainly for independent free thinkers, trying to get them to do something together is quite hard. But as long as there's a few of us and we're there to have a little bit of fun, um, I, I think hopefully it's going to be an enjoyable lunchtime. And it's from 12 o'clock on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wants to join us, we're, we're organizing a um, meeting at the Cenotaph just before midday. We're, we're going to protest for a little while, and then we'll head down to the pub afterwards and have a pint. Yeah. Um, oh, personally, I can't see why anyone would want to pray uh, at the beginning of Parliament. It's basically nonsense. But um, the, the thing is, yeah, the... Why have a prayer at all? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, You know, a a prayer should not be there. I I think it's not welcoming to everybody. And It really means, look, we've run out of ideas. We we are in desperate need of help. Um, And thinking about it around a desk with some papers and some information is not going to help. Let's just wish to something that's not there. And of course, a lot of prayers are like that. A lot of prayers are people talking about how helpless they are and how nothing is done without God. And it it does seem a little bit fatalistic in a way, doesn't it, to be... uh, to be saying, well, you know, we, we can't even trust ourselves to do this when these are the people that we have voted in to make these decisions. To see them then saying, well, we, we need to trust a God for it. Yeah, it, it's a little bit worrying. And hopefully, practically, even though the prayer mentions God and seeking God, fingers crossed that's not what they're actually doing. And they mm. are sitting down and, and putting in the work to try and do the best they can. Yeah, well, in our court of law, you don't have to uh, do that anymore, do you? Like so what, no. swearing on the Bible's no good. Won't be any good for me <laughs> if I'm in court or anything. That doesn't really mean much, does it? No. But yeah, and it, it's the same. I think um, when you become a citizen as well, you don't have to swear on the Bible either. So changes are being made, and this change that's happened is a change in the right direction. It's just a little bit worrying to see Christians already trying to undo it. Yeah. Oh well. They obviously just want everybody to believe in what they believe, or else. And yeah, that, that's a concern. I was I was talking to a friend the other day who um, I was wondering whether maybe he'd help me with this protest. And he said there was a conflict of interest. He's an ex-Jehovah's Witness. Mm. And um, I said, but surely you, you don't think that 
Christianity should be given unfair treatment by Parliament, that it should be singled out and promoted. And, and he said yes, that he did. And I, I, you know, it is surprising that there are people out there that believe that society shouldn't be fair and that their particular religious belief should be the only one that's promoted. OK, while you're ragging on the maker... Um... Oh, sorry, while well, we're ragging on the maker, uh, the blasphemy law likely to be removed from Ireland. Yeah, so so this is looking really hopeful. So Ireland's history with the blasphemy law has been a little bit all over the place. Um, I know there's a local comedian there that he called the comedian way for haunted bread a couple of years ago and had a complaint made against him. And um, there's the famous one of Stephen Fry being threatened with legal action because of a response he gave um, in an interview on Irish TV. And I think we should have some of the audio of that interview. Here he is. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing, there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. All right, Stephen Fry there from that uh, famous interview. Um, I still find it kind of creepy that you could be charged for saying something obviously well thought of as that. Yeah, and, and certainly there Stephen Fry comes across as uh, reasonable and obviously he, he has thought about this a lot. This isn't something that's spur of the moment. He's not trying to insult a god. He's giving his honest opinion. And thankfully for Stephen Fry at the time, um, they couldn't find anybody to back up the um, the charge of blasphemy. Nobody was willing to step forward and say that they felt like their god had been insulted. Um, really? The, the, the god was <laughs> insulted? But nobody, maybe everybody liked Stephen Fry so much that nobody wanted to step forward. Yeah. I guess people needed to say that they felt insulted that their God was insulted. I don't know. It's a weird one because blasphemy is not insulting someone's religion or their beliefs. It is insulting a God. That, that's what the crime is. Um, so it's a fairly specific crime, basically. Um, but yeah, so what's happened now is Ireland has run a referendum just to ask the public what they think. And from what I can tell, it looks like if not binding, at least there is an expectation that the government will follow the recommendation of the referendum. And the official result is not in yet, but the exit polls suggest that it's going to be around 71% voting for repeal of the blasphemy law. Mm. Um, so it's looking really likely now that Ireland is going to remove their blasphemy law, which is absolutely brilliant. And I think lucky for them because we still have one mm. and uh, we're still waiting. I think we're getting there. So, um, so far, the repeal of the blasphemy law in New Zealand has been through one reading in Parliament. It's just been to the select committee and it's currently in the queue awaiting a second reading in Parliament. And um, there's a document that came out, the recommendations from 
the select committee and um, I'll just read a little bit of what they said because it's it's really positive and unless there's a real spanner in the works it looks like quite possibly we will be losing our blasphemy lawsuit and what they said was we recommend no changes to clause 5 which would repeal section 123 doing away with the offence of blasphemous libel we heard concerns that the repeal would encourage hate speech against God incite violence and remove a safeguard for religious freedom it was suggested that repeal would disrupt the maintenance of wholesome boundaries in the media and would insult God and the Christian foundations of New Zealand. We consider it highly unlikely that repeal of this little-known provision would result in any of these issues. So their recommendation is definitely that the law should be removed. Um, I think now, hopefully, it's just a matter of waiting and it'll happen possibly within the next few months. Okay. Yeah, I have problems with that middle paragraph. Uh, worried that it might create a situation where God was insulted. Um, and that's begging the question, isn't it? Um, show me your God, and which yeah, one? Yeah, absolutely. And I got to sit in um, because I I gave an oral submission to the select committee for this, and I got to sit in and listen to one Christian talking about their concerns. And it, it was interesting to hear because. Um, to me, it didn't seem like there was any compelling reason why the law should stay, and it didn't seem like even he believed there was any compelling reason no. for the, the law to stay, which was good. Yeah. It's not that this creates great disruption in society today. Uh, people might think that you're just being rather a busybody about a little thing that's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, certainly that's what it seems like at first, especially given that this law has only been used once unsuccessfully um but as we've talked about before the the real issue here is what it does to our standing on the international stage and it's very hard for new zealand to criticize countries who execute people for their blasphemy laws yep. when we have our own blasphemy law we can't open our mouths because they just pointed us and say well you think that blasphemy is wrong as well all we're doing is giving a harsher punishment than you are yeah um and so to get or a more this, just I, I punishment really important a more just punishment according to this scripture. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess a lot of these countries with Sharia law, um, they, they are trying to be true to their religious belief and, and not be half-hearted about it, I guess. Mm. Yeah, some people listening might think, hey, come on, you're just bragging on the Christians. Have a go at Islam. Okay. Uh, flying on a horse, really? Warning, warning, bullshit alert. We'll move on. <laughs> HRV fined for false claims. Yeah, so th this was one we talked about a few months ago where HRV had pled guilty to various counts of making false claims about a water filter that they sell. So they sell the water filter, they, um, they talk about the things it's able to do to the water, and they also talk about how that can benefit you, um, how it can help with skin conditions like eczema. Uh, it turns out that um, these claims were not supported by evidence. Thankfully, the company did plead guilty rather than trying to argue the case. But what's interesting that's come out now that they've been fined, and they've been fined $400,000, which sounds like a fair amount. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting that's come out now is that it seems like legally part of the reason why they were in trouble is because, as far as the court was concerned, they didn't have evidence for their claims at the time they made them. And I think this is a really interesting point, and it's a point that is also in our advertising standards authority laws and, and that's the idea that 
when you're making a claim about something, it doesn't matter whether the thing does what you say it does or not. If you don't have the evidence at the time you're making the claim, you shouldn't be justified in making that claim. So it's not okay for you to make a medical claim about something. And then when you're challenged, go out and do a study, try and get the evidence together. Uh, the law says if you didn't have the evidence when you started making the claim, we will find you guilty even if you can find the evidence six months or a year down the line. It doesn't matter. At the time, you didn't know that what you were saying was actually true, and that's not fair to the consumer. So it's really good to see that um, this case seems to have... Uh, have been involved with that that part of the law, and that seems to have been used in order to find HRV guilty. And um, and yeah, it's it's something that I, I'd love to see happen more often because I still see everywhere I turn bad claims being made everywhere about medical products and devices. And uh, it would just be nice to see a lot of these companies realizing that they can't say this kind of stuff without good evidence. Yeah, fair enough. It seems clearly fair to me. Uh, anything else is kind of duplicitous, fixing it after the fact. Oh, 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 see, I was right when I didn't know I was. Yeah, as if. It's the intent in the first place. Okay, uh, Mark Honeychurch, thank you so much for sceptical thoughts again this week, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. I think Susie's back next week. Good run. Thank oh. you very much, Mark Honeychurch. Cheers, and uh, all the best for the Skeptics Conference. Cheers. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At dawn, the ridge emerges, massed and done in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smouldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shrouds the menacing scarred slope. And one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of gray, muttering faces masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. That from the famous poem by Siegfried Sassoon, The Attack. This is Jesus, Make It Stop, part five for October the 28th, as we walked through the death throes of World War One towards Armistice on November the 11th, which will be a Sunday. That was the merciful end to the conflict, but not for all. Some poor bastards still copped it. We'll cover that then. Glenn Harper, military historian, Massey University, has taken us through these last weeks of World War I. Glenn, lovely to have you back again. Yeah, thank you, Graham. It's a pleasure to be back. OK. The ongoing to-and-fro messaging between Woodrow Wilson and combatants. We spoke, you told us last week a little bit about, well, this is what we want to happen, and the mm -hmm. Germans saying, no, that's unfair. Where's it at now? 
Well, there's another exchange of notes, and uh, this week the Germans receive another reply from Woodrow Wilson on the 23rd of October, which is even more emphatic about his desire for major constitutional changes and the fact that any armistice that they um, are going to impose on Germany will mean that they're not going to be able to renew hostilities in the foreseeable future. And um, he points it out in this note in no uncertain terms that we will... uh, agree to an armistice only if it's going to stop uh, Germany from renewing that conflict and only if it's going to lead to major democratic changes within Germany. And he also points out that the other two governments of uh, of the two major powers involved, France and Britain, will be involved in armistice terms. So uh, Wilson replies on the 23rd. As you would expect, that has a major impact in Germany when they receive that note and realise that Wilson's not going to budge and that they're not going to get this peace armistice under the terms of the 14 points he elaborated at the beginning of uh, 1918. What ifs are always difficult because Mm. you never really know. But Mm. if the Germans had held fast and said, no, no, this is unacceptable, we shall fight to the last man, it Mm. would have been the total destruction of all German infrastructure and society. Well, there's no way getting around it. They were being drastically defeated on the Western Front. They had no answer for this combined force of the Allies um, launching this 100-day offensive. Um, In some ways, it might have been a good thing because what's going to happen, um, as we'll see later on, is that the German military are able to shift the blame for defeat onto the democratically elected um, representatives at the armistice and at Versailles, which leads to this myth that they've been stabbed in the back. In actual fact, they're being stabbed in the front and are are being militarily defeated in detail, but it's something that they're able to sidestep by having other people negotiate the armistice for them and sign the the treaty. So in some ways it might have been a good good thing if they uh, were going to fight on, but of course that didn't happen. Ludendorff certainly wanted to fight on. Um, He saw that uh, reply on the 23rd uh, as being a demand for unconditional surrender and he thought that was unacceptable and uh, he started to write a uh, proclamation to all the German soldiers and I can actually quote from that proclamation. He says, uh, and this is a proclamation he wrote, the Allies have issued a demand for unconditional surrender. It is thus unacceptable to our soldiers. It proves that our enemies desire for our destruction which let loose the war in 1914 still exists diminished. It can thus be nothing for us soldiers but a challenge to continue our resistance with all our strength and to the last man. That's really a fairly, fairly dramatic statement to make. Um, That's fight and talk. Yeah, it sure is. Um, The message, though, was suppressed by a staff officer. It got leaked to the press um, and caused an uproar back in Berlin. Um, And two days later, after writing that proclamation, Ludendorff got the sack. Ludendorff, a huge figure in World War One. A little bit about him, because we're really only covering these last few weeks sure. of World War One. To put it in perspective, how important it was, what kind of event it was for Ludendorff to get sacked slash resign. 
Um, well, it was a huge, huge event. Um, he had uh, been basically the military dictator in Germany from you know the probably about the middle of 1917 and through all of 1918. It was he who was calling the shots. It was he who was directing military military strategy for the for the German um, military, um, and it was he who decided to carry out those huge offensives at the beginning of 1918, which basically bled Germany of its best soldiers. But um, so he was he was the person calling the shots for Germany, and in many ways Hindenburg was a, fig, a figurehead. Uh, Ludendorff was becoming more and more erratic during 1918, particularly after the Schwarzatag, which is the 8th of August 1918, the Black Day of the German Army, and his moods would seriously uh, swing between being uh, optimistic that they could continue to um, actually moods of serious depression and actually collapsing on the carpet and foaming at, at the mouth. So he was becoming more and more erratic and irrational and I think in some ways the war had seriously unbalanced him. Um, as an example of that, he had two stepsons and they were both killed during the war and um, the stepson that was killed in August 1918, Hindenburg uh, actually had his body uh, retrieved from the battlefield and brought back to his headquarters where it was uh, placed in a refrigerator and each night he would go and talk to it, he'd pull it out and talk to it, um, which I think indicates that he's slightly unbalanced, but also I think it indicates certainly the loneliness and isolation of command. And uh, so on the 26th of October, after issuing that statement, after giving his all to the German war effort, he's unceremoniously dumped, you know, told nobody wants him, gets no thank you, no acknowledgement, and just told, well, that's it, no longer required. And uh, and I feel sorry for him in, in that regard, although he is a very very unsympathetic character, and I have to say, comes back in the 20s as a supporter of Adolf Hitler and is involved in the Munich Putsch of the early 1920s. Good heavens, mm. what an image to have recorded, talking to your dead stepson. Yeah, it, it, it is. But his his replacement, uh, and, and of course it all, all happens um, this week, um, is comp his complete opposite in many ways. And he's going to be an important character. He's General Wilhelm Gruner, and Gruner is a moderate and a realist. He's not of that Prussian military cast. In fact, he's a Swabian like, like Rommel was. He was a uh, logistics specialist, uh, being a, specifically around railway transport. He was the son of a sergeant. And the very first thing that he did, uh, unlike Ludendorff, was to actually go out to the front line, talk to soldiers and talk to commanders. He's spoke to 50 regimental commanders and they all told him the one thing, look, the war has to end, we need an armistice at the earliest possible moment. And uh, so he becomes convinced that basically Germany needs to end the war as soon as possible and he puts all his efforts into doing that. What is the action in Europe this week, 100 years ago? Well, the ac action continues uh, on the Western Front, across the entire front. The Battle of the Sal continues, which is going to be a comprehensive British victory and which will push the Germans back some 20 miles beyond the Scheldt River. So the British Expeditionary Force are advancing on a huge front of between 20 and 30 miles between Lecanois and Valenciennes. Uh, the the Americans and the French are also carrying out a major offensive further south. But you mentioned action in Europe. One theatre we haven't covered is the um, action happening in Italy. And this week is a very, very eventful week it's in the Italian theatre. In fact, it's uh, probably the most important week of the war there. And uh, if I can just outline briefly,
briefly uh, what, what what happened. Yeah, please do, because this is the real fight between, is it the, the Austro-Hungarians and the Italians? Yes, it is, ab- absolutely. And um, the, they've been fighting around the Isonzo River, um, and it's been alpine fighting, river fighting, and there'd been no progress for virtually the entire war, and there were 11 separate battles of the Isonzo. But at the end of 1917, the uh, the Austro-Hungarians had been reinforced uh, by their German allies and actually carried out, out a serious military operation, which was a severe defeat for the Italians, the Battle of Caporetto. But what happens after that is that the... Um, Italian commander who can best be described as somewhat inept and dogged and something of a martinet but also a severe military disciplinarian in fact uh, this is Field Marshal Luigi Cadorna who actually has the record I think for uh, allies in the in the first world war for killing more of his own soldiers than than any other I mean the, in terms of military ex- executions it's the Italian military that holds the record and this guy Cadorna had actually carried out over 750 Um, executions of his own soldiers but he goes, the military is built up, um, it is reinforced by uh, British and French divisions and there's a new offensive which starts on the 23rd of October under their new commander General Armando Diaz they attack all along the Piave River it becomes known as the Battle of Vittorio Veneto there it's a huge battle, 57 divisions including 3 British and 2 French, over nearly 8,000 artillery pieces, they attack along the entire front line and the Austro-Hungarian forces who aren't small themselves, they've got 52 divisions in Italy but their morale is poor, their leadership is poor and the army's on the verge of collapse and by the 28th of October the Italians, the British and the French have got two bridgeheads across the Piave River and the Italian-Hungarian line is ready to crumble. It's their, their last effort. And in the week that follows, they are decisively defeated and sue for an armistice. So big events happening in Italy and a major reversal of fortune for the Italian, uh, for the Italian military. That sounds as brutal a conflict as any time during the war. Oh, absolutely. Uh, often overlooked, uh, particularly those battles of the Isonzo. If you're looking for attritional warfare with some of the harshest conditions of the war, where you can measure gains in terms of yards made, but casualties in hundreds of thousands, the Italian theatre of the First World War is as bad as the Western Front. The 1918 influenza epidemic, we know now in hindsight exactly how massive it was going to yeah. be. Um, yeah. Was it becoming known at this stage in October that it was a big thing, that it was a pandemic, or was this just a little interesting? No, it was uh, it was known that this was going to be quite severe, and it came on in the, in a the number of uh, waves. Um, this influenza pandemic is is different to ones that have gone on before. The virus had mutated so that instead of targeting the the elderly and the, the the very young, like most influenza viruses do, this actually seemed to hone in on the fit and and the young, the, the most healthiest ones. And the second wave of it hit 
the hit the German army um, around August September. So not only are the Germans uh, on the back foot, they are also being seriously depleted by this wave of influenza which is sweeping through their army. And of course, all those German soldiers that are captured, the virus is then spread to soldiers and of the Allies as well. But but it hits the German military first on the Western Front from about mid mid 1989, and seriously incapacitates their army so that uh, basically they are not only contending with the Allies who are in, in full flight, but also this very debilitating uh, influenza pandemic as well. Gosh, it is impossible to imagine mm. getting a train from Paris to Berlin today yep. and imagine it was only a hundred years ago. What a different world. Oh, abs absolutely. And if you took that train, you would be passing through several war zones and devastated countryside as well. Okay, in the Middle East, mm. these names are familiar now because of recent conflicts. Aleppo, yep, yep, Mosul, yep. Kirkuk. Mm -hmm. It's the British who are fighting. We yep. may um, assume that because of recent events, these are locals fighting against the British. Who are they fighting? Is it the Turks and Ottomans trying to hang on to the rest of their empire or is it local? No, it's predominantly the last resistance of the Ottoman Turks. Um, and I'll just take uh, one of those cities as an example for the city of Mosul, which uh, is really the centre of the region's oil fields um, in Mesopotamia, what we know now as, as Iraq. Uh, there, the local garrison commander was a Ottoman Turk uh, from a rel relatively well-connected family. His name was Hillel Pasha, and he decides that he's actually going to put up a resistance, and he holds out in Mosul till mid-November, which is well after the armistice has been signed. Uh, so this is, they're really f uh, fighting the last-ditch effort of the Ottoman Turks to hold on to uh, what had once been a vast empire, but these are just remnants of, of that force uh, putting up this last rearguard action. Where were New Zealanders and Australians this week, 100 years ago, what were they doing? Uh, well, the Australians, the AIF, were actually out of the action. They'd been uh, they'd left the front line in about the first week of October, basically because they were pretty they were pretty much a spent force. So they were behind the lines, reconstituting, resting, and trying to build their infantry battalions up to full strength. So they're not actually involved in any more fighting uh, on the Western Front. The New Zealanders are back in the line. Um, they've had a week's rest and they're put back in the line on the 21st of October, and they take part in the closing stages of the Battle of the Cell. Now, this Battle of the Cell is a comprehensive British victory. The New Zealanders are brought in in its final stages, and they basically wind up pushing the Germans back continuously. One New Zealand soldier, of course, in his diary is pushing Jerry. We're pushing Jerry, and they push Jerry, or the Germans, all the way back to Lekanwa in the Mormal Forest. And, of course, we're coming up to the capture of Lekanwar in that first week of November. But at the moment, they're involved in this great battle, this Battle of the Cell, this comprehensive British victory. They're in the front line again with the 37th Division and they're pushing the Germans back um, relentlessly. And no apology for reminding people again that some of those soldiers were probably veterans of Gallipoli as well. 
Some of them had had a, had a very long war. Um, some of them were uh, recent arrivals, um, reinforcements. And one thing I, we should have perhaps mentioned is that the New Zealand division in 1918 is the strongest division in the British Expeditionary Force. They're, they're always able to keep the division at full strength, primarily because of they've introduced conscription earlier on, but they also have a very effective reinforcement system so that they're able to keep that division up to full strength when the British uh, divisions aren't, and certainly the Australians can't keep theirs at full strength either. So the New Zealand Division is a combination of veterans who have been around since the start of the war and many Gallipoli veterans as well, but also newly arrived reinforcements and who are keeping the division up to full strength and replacing those who are becoming casualties or who are becoming ill uh, during this period. A hundred years ago, October the 28th, there was no Yugoslavia. Today, mm -hmm. there is no Yugoslavia. It all happened in between, but it had its genesis about this time, didn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it did. Um, in fact, um, the, the Yugoslavia, to prevent a country like Yugoslavia being formed was actually one of the main reasons that Austria-Hungary had gone to war in 1914. They wanted to crush Serbia, which would be seen to be the natural leader for a country of Slavs. And in Serbia, they saw another country like Prussia, who had been the unifying force for a Germany and had kicked Aust Austria-Hungary out of German affairs, or another Piedmont, who had been the main unifying force for Italy and had kicked Austria-Hungary out of Italian affairs. So in 1914, there were only two independent Slav states. That was Serbia, the largest, and Montenegro. So, but there were large regions of the Austro-Hungarian Empire which had huge Slav populations, and they were Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, the, the Dalmatian coast, and other parts. Um, and in actual fact, the war will create a Yugoslavia, which was the very thing that the Austro-Hungarians have been trying to prevent in 1914. There was a Yugoslav um, commission formed in London in 1915, and in July 1917 they issued a declaration called the Corfu Declaration, which was actually the decision and showing their intent to create a united nations of Slovenes, Croats and, and Serbs under some type of constitutional monarchy, which would probably be the monarchy of the Serbian dynasty. And as Austria-Hungary uh, was collapsing in October 1918, various parts of that empire started to declare independence, and we've spoken about the Polish Declaration, we've spoken about the Czech Declaration, um, and the Croats, Slovenes and Serbs do something similar in early November, and actually create this state called Yugoslavia uh, at the end of November 1918. And I've got to say, the Serbian army, as it advanced, annexed parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that it wanted to be part of Yugoslavia, next Bosnia-Herzegovina. It actually annexed Montenegro as well, which was the only allied state to actually lose its independence um, through this war. And But it does create this United Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, which is formally proclaimed at the end of December 1918 and will become a nation of about 12 million people. So it's a, it's a small European state, but still much larger than New Zealand was at the time have to say, though, uh, there was internal division uh, evident from its very inception. Um, there was an armed Montenegrin opposition from about 1919 through 1926, and the Croats were soon disillusioned by the fact that they were not sharing power with the Serbs, and that the Serbs actually dominated the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. And 
And those divisions will become very evident, um, especially during the Second World War. And of course, after the war, it takes a strong man uh, like the communist uh, Joseph uh, Tito to actually unify the country and actually turn it in, in, into one. But there's still all these ethnic divisions which are still bubbling along beneath the surface. Yeah, Tito, a strong man. I, I have difficulty in lauding someone who's essentially a pretty violent dictator, but or he, yeah. he didn't blindly follow Stalin, which was, I suppose, one good thing for him. But what was he doing at this stage? He fought in the Great War. Uh, yes, he did, although he had a rather short war. Um, like um, most members of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he was subject to the draft, so he was called up for military service. And he was actually serving in a, a Croatian uh, unit of the Austro-Hungarian Army um, in 1914 as part of his military service. And he did have a, um, did have some military action. Uh, he served in Serbia against the... So he fought for the Austro-Hungarian Empire against Serbia. And then he also fought against the Russians. And he was also recommended for a, uh, for a gallantry decoration in his fight against the Russians. But in uh, 1915, and I think it's early 1915, somewhere around March, um, he was uh, seriously wounded, and I'm surprised he survived actually, because he wound up on the wrong end of a of a cavalryman's lance. He got uh, a lance through through the back, a Circassian cavalryman um, in a in a charge, so he was uh, badly wounded. He spent over a year in a Russian hospital recovering. Um, and during that time, he learned to actually speak Russian. Um, and after that, he spent most of his time uh, in Russian POW camps. Uh, but as soon as the uh, revolution happened, he, he, he joined in with the Bolsheviks, uh, took part in some of their actions. And obviously, this is where his communist influence came from. But yes, had been a soldier in the Austro-Hungarian army, had fought for them and, and fought quite bravely, but spent most of his time as a prisoner of war of the Russians. Glenn Harper, historian from Massey University. Thank you so much. That's 100 years ago, October the 28th, and a couple of weeks to go till armistice. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Graham. I look forward to it. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. Weekend Variety. Wireless. Only a couple of weekends to go of the lead up to armistice on the 11th of november glenn harper will take us there and you never know we may be able to twist his arm and do a week after because there was still conflict going on even after they'd signed up to say all guns should stop the message didn't get everywhere all at once Okay, uh, coming up in the next hour, John Divig is let off the leash, Divig's letter from America, and part two of Read Me a Poem. This was an idea from a listener uh, who messaged through on Facebook and said, why don't you do a thing on poems or something along those lines. Uh, poetry can be impenetrable and a lot of people just think, Gah. but the thing is, We'll just find some luminaries, people who like poetry, and ask them, read us a poem. Go on, just read us a poem and tell us why it's good. That's the more important thing. Bill Doreen, if you haven't heard of him, uh, go look him up. A tremendous musician, songwriter. He had a hit in the 80s with Do the Alligator, which is neat. A fabulous thing. 
but there are so many more sublime tunes that he's written. And he's also a poet and a great writer as well and has been involved with theatre and he's got a show. It's happening in Dunedin and Oamaru and it happens to have a World War I theme as well. Uh, it's called The Hospital Pass. It's happening uh, on the 9th, 10th and 11th, the 9th and 10th in Dunedin and the 11th in Oamaru, uh, where his father was born. So go look it up. We'll give you all the details in the next hour about that show. But I suppose more importantly for said task, he will be reading us two favourite poems. One a New Zealand poem and one written in the 1400s, would you believe it? And an early warning, there is the F word in it, but you don't muck with poetry because words are all the poetry has.